Songwriter, the podcast that turns stories into songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today, we have a brand new song from Ukrainian-American scholar and musician Maria Sonovitsky. But first, the story of a face-to-face meeting with Vladimir Putin. My name is Masha Kessin. I'm um, a writer and journalist. So this was a while ago now, and what was happening in my life was that I was uh, editor-in-chief of the oldest, leading, biggest, everything magazine in Russia, which was a popular science magazine, and which was a job I really, really loved. I got a phone call from my publisher asking me to send a reporter with Putin. He was going through a period of sort of being king of the jungle. He had done a lot of stunts with other very large animals. And so this was going to be another stunt. He was going to fly, like hang glide, and lead the Siberian cranes on a new migratory route. What I said was, look, we have the option of not wading into this. If I send a reporter, the reporter will see something that you don't want to see. If I don't send a reporter, we'll just report on the Siberian cranes and no one will ever know it was Putin. They were always endangering animals that he was staging stunts with. They doped this polar bear. Uh, They took a a snow leopard from the Khabarovsk Zoo and like pretend frolicked with it in the wild. So something like like that was going to happen. And sure enough, you know, the, the, I think two cranes ended up dying in transport because once Putin got involved, they had to be transported to where Putin wanted to be, not where the cranes should be, etc. So I said, you know, let's 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 not do it. And he said, well, how about we do it the other way around? How about you send a reporter and then we don't have to publish it? And I said, well, that's not a service I provide. I don't like I don't provide the, you know, the reporter on the plane service. And so then my publisher said, okay, you're fired. And that was on a Saturday, and on Monday I came into work, filled out all the paperwork, got my severance package, and tweeted out that I was leaving the magazine because of Putin. I was not surprised. The way I ended up in that job was that I'd been a political journalist for many years, and it had become impossible to do political journalism. I was not surprised to find politics coming to get me there as well. I went home with two of my closest friends, uh, we got very drunk <laughs> because we're sad because because uh, one of them actually worked at the magazine with me and we loved this job. And then the next morning, I actually had to fly to Prague for a job interview. So six in the morning, I land in Prague. I'm in a taxi. I'm hungover and miserable. And my uh, my phone rings because it's like eight thirty in the morning in Moscow. And somebody says, hold on, I'm going to connect you. And it was like two and a half minutes that I'm waiting, starting to get very anxious because I no longer have a magazine paying for my roaming charges. (laughs) So then a male voice comes on the line and says, do not hang up, I'm about to connect you. And I start screaming at this person, like, I didn't ask to be connected to anybody. If you want me to hold on forever, why don't you introduce yourself? And then I hear a third voice. And that voice says, Putin Vladimir Vladimirovich. I'm like, okay, this is an interesting prank call. 
And the person on the other end of the line starts talking to me about my firing and about how he was unwittingly at fault and how he's very sincere about his nature preservation efforts. And the thing is that I had written a book about Putin. I had written basically an unauthorized biography and a kind of a history of his regime or the first 12 years of his regime that had been published about six months earlier. It was published uh, in the US and I think like 20 other countries simultaneously. It was an international bestseller. I obviously, in writing the book, has spent several years trying to get inside this man's head. I'd never interviewed him. him. No one had really ever interviewed him except for an authorized biography when he was first running for president 12 years earlier. The point of the book was to, 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 to paint a comprehensive portrait of Putin and his regime. And the portrait that I wound up with was the portrait of a thug, of basically a mafia clan masquerading as a government and using all the tools of a mafia clan to carry out its, its, its work, including covert murders of the regime's opponents. And this was long before the Navalny investigations and the, and, and the Bellingcat investigations that have given us actual evidence. A number of key opponents of the regime had died mysteriously and the symptoms they had experienced before death were consistent with poisoning, in particular with bio, uh, you know, chemicals that were, had been developed as biological weapons and also in one case with radioactive poisoning, the, the plutonium poisoning of um, Alexander Litvinenko in the UK and also the bombings of apartment buildings in Moscow and elsewhere that had accelerated Putin's rise to power. They did have something to do with the bombings and they used the bombings to accelerate Putin's rise to power. So some people are calling me crazy. Some people are saying these revelations are shocking and, and incredible, but you know, I'm, I stand behind them. I, like I know this guy's a murderer. All of this made it exceedingly unlikely that the man on the other end of the phone was, in fact, Vladimir Putin. And yet, in other ways, it fit Masha's central premise perfectly. I don't think he's calling, right? I think this is a prank call. And I'm marveling because the person I'm on the phone with is just so good at being Putin. He says this thing, he says, you know, I'm, I'm sincere about my nature preservation efforts. Ideally, they should be separate from politics, but for a person in my position. And I thought, oh, what a brilliant turn of phrase. Like this is, this is exactly what Putin does. He always denigrates, as though denigrating himself actually denigrates the entire political system while elevating himself. And he says, so, you know, I'd like to, if you're amenable to this, I'd like to get together and talk about this. You know, I have nobody come back, so I'm like, okay, but, um, like, um, how do I know you are who you say you are? At this point, he starts laughing hysterically. He's like, well, this is how it's going to work. After we hang up, the deputy head of my administration, Anton Vaino, is going to call you and set a, set a meeting. I'm going to show up for the meeting, and that's how you'll know. We hang up. The deputy head of his administration calls. We set up the meeting for Tuesday, a week from today. 
it's, it's funny, I had written two books in a row that were about people I didn't speak to. I had written a book about a very reclusive mathematician, and I had written a book about Putin. And so I was, I was talking to my editor in the States after this phone call, and she said, she said I'm scared for you. Are, are you going to go? I said, of course I'm going to go, and, and I'm excited. I mean, not as excited as I would be if the mathematician had called me, but, but still very excited. I mean, when you write a, a book about somebody, you spend several years constructing a character. Once you like have sort of the shape of the whole at the center of the story, you really want to see if it's right. And so I wanted to see if the Putin that I had put on paper, and that had at that point you know, been published like in the hundreds of thousands around the world, corresponded to the person that I was going to see in the flesh. But also, my hypothesis was that he would be completely uninformed, and that you know that all he wanted to do was was pose with probably pictures of cranes or or uh, or you know or just pose in front of me, and I was going to just have this incredible opportunity to, to encounter a character and hopefully write about it. So actually, my first question once I got into the Kremlin was, what is the format of this meeting? Meaning, was I going to be able to write about it? Are they going to be, uh, were they going to obligate me? to some sort of off-the-record thing, and she said, I don't know, which was a perfect sign that, of course, I was right, right? Like, why wouldn't she know? Because no one dared ask. Arguably, Masha was betting their life that Putin was exactly as they portrayed him, vain, incurious, and so tyrannically insulated from the real world, he would have no idea that the person he was meeting with had accused him of murder in a book read by hundreds of thousands of people across the world. In order for him to be informed, someone would have had to tell him. I knew the man didn't use the internet, still doesn't. I knew from my research that the information he got were printouts in large point type, like 14 point type, that people put in front of him. And the way he operates, and this is also important, is I think the, the story he tells himself is that he is well informed because he plays people in his inner circle off against each other. Every Soviet bureaucrat has a desk that's set back from the door through which visitors enter the room. And then there's a long conference table. And so the person sits at the desk and you have to walk. And if they like re really respect you, then they get up and walk and meet, meet you halfway, sort of around the middle of the conference table. But it's Putin, so he doesn't respect anybody that much. So I have to walk all the way up to the desk Whereupon he finally gets up, shakes, shakes my hand, and says, So I needed to find out, do, did you like your job, or are you trying to earn a reputation as an opposition journalist? And I'm like, bingo. He knows absolutely nothing. He doesn't know that I have a reputation. <laughs> he doesn't know that I've been blacklisted by the Kremlin for 12 years. It was, I think, literally the first journalist blacklisted by the Putin administration. It felt 
very odd because part of me was like, I was, I was right. This is exactly sort of what I had figured out from, from all the, you know, all the outside signs. But part of me was also disappointed because the person that I wrote the book about is really boring. The Putin on the book is two-dimensional, uncurious, just dull as fuck. And part of me wanted to see him come to life. You know, to write some sort of epilogue that would be like, oh, he's actually, you know, quirky in some other way, or he has humanity. Part of me was hoping to see that there was some spark of something. But there was nothing there. So I felt this sort of self-satisfaction and disappointment at the same time. And then he talked about how he likes kitties and puppies and little animals, exact quote. That drive to denigrate, to diminish anything that exists in the world outside of him. It's like, I think it's stronger than he is. It's a fundamentally cynical regime. Nothing matters. So naturally, just the way that he talked, said to me on the phone, that, you know, for a person in my position, president of the biggest country in the world, right? Uh, I mean, landmass. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's difficult, right? And denigrate that position. Uh, the exact same way he diminished the thing that he was claiming was important to him. Because otherwise, something other than he becomes important. And he just can't abide that. So then we had a ridiculous conversation about his efforts at enlightening the Russian population. You know, that went on for like, 15 minutes. And then I was about to quote the Law and the Media chapter and verse to him. That's when he got up from the table and said, I see where this conversation is going. Thank you for coming in. But before that happened, he had forced the publisher to offer me my job back. In effect, Putin had offered me my job back. The publisher of this magazine, he was a major entrepreneur whose advertising business had been wrested away from him by Putin's cronies, which happened to a lot of businesses. Basically, part of the consolidation of Putin regime in its first decade was taking profitable, money-making, well-capitalized enterprises away from people who had either started them or were running them and giving them to people loyal to Putin. So this had happened to this guy. He had become a hired employee at a company that he had started. He'd been humiliated and I think probably very, very, very scared. He bought this magazine that had very nearly got a, got a, gone out of print. Uh, it, was a, it was a losing venture, but it was a beloved magazine that had existed for something like 150 years. It literally is the oldest magazine in the country. And he was bringing it back to life. And he bought this cute little building on the outskirts of the city. It was all like, oh, we're just going to like, you know, tend to our garden here. And nobody's going to look at us. And, and, and at least we're going to be doing good in the world on this, in this very limited way. And he was using the salary that, <laughs> that his old business was paying him to bankroll the magazine. So it was terrifying for him to find himself in, you know, in Putin's orbit again, it to, in what to him felt like the, the crosshairs. 
And so, of course, he was trying, I think, in firing me to just keep himself safe, keep his, his beloved project safe, and to keep the thing that had happened to him from happening again, what he didn't realize is that it had already happened. Like Putin owns whatever he likes, which is why he was in a position to offer me my job back. Most of the time what Putin takes are valuable things like you know, oil companies and advertising companies uh, that, uh, that, that make money and, um, <clears throat> and that people need. But he is also apparently clinically a kleptomaniac. There's, there's this one time that he was, I think it was at the Met, there was a reception and someone had sent this ridiculous thing. And like you can buy it, at the, or you at least used to be able to buy it at the duty-free in Moscow, a glass replica of a Kalashnikov filled with vodka. I think it's like $250. And so someone had, I think maybe the embassy had sent it to the Met as a present. And then it's like carried into the room and Putin takes it as though it's a present for him. On another occasion, he took somebody's NFL ring. Uh, that was a valuable thing, but still, you know, not something he's going to wear. My friends, as it turned out, had been really nervous. Uh, they'd been sitting there, like, really terrified. And I said, okay, well, so what do I do? I mean, they were still all working there. They were still at the magazine. And I said, maybe I should take the job back. And Vera said to me, my closest friend, she said, are you out of your mind? And that recalibrated my mind. And I thought, of course I'm out of my mind. I can't take my job back from Putin. It hadn't been given to me by Putin in the first place, but now it would have been given to me by Putin. Completely unrelatedly, um, Russia passed a series of anti-LGBT laws about eight months later, and we had to beat it out of there because they were going to come after my kids. Even as you know, that the biggest newspaper in the country has published what, what um, amounts to a clear threat against you and your family, it still feels unreal because why? Like, I'm, I'm, yes, I was one of the most prominent journalists in Russia, but still, I'm just like a person, you know, with kids. I, I'm not a country, I'm not like, why would this regime target little me? I can't know for sure, but I don't see a scenario in which he, he realizes who I am. I also am still around. From everything I can tell, there's been no surveillance on my tail since 2015. And now for the song written in response. My name is Maria Sinovitsky. I'm a professor at Bard College in Anthropology and Music, and I'm a scholar of Ukraine, of Soviet and post-Soviet Ukraine. I'm also a musician. I was born into a family of Ukrainian refugees. They came to this country in the 1950s as displaced people after World War II. And so I was born into a family where Ukrainian language and Ukrainian identity in a very particular way was of primary importance. Ukrainian was my first language. I went to Saturday school, Ukrainian school on Saturdays. 
And my social life really revolved in many ways for many years around uh, the Ukrainian diaspora in, in and around New York City. So it was formative for me and it's been a terrible year. It's terrible to be this far from a country where I have so many friends and family and colleagues. You know, I've been doing anything I can to support the people I know there and to raise money in any ways I can and raise awareness to the best of my abilities. I was raised in a diasporic kind of ethnic idea about Ukrainian identity. For that generation of refugees and displaced persons, stateless people was very important to hold on to. They worried about the erasure of the language and the culture and the ethnic identity of Ukrainianness. But I think it's always really critically important to stress that since 1991, especially when Ukraine declared its independence from the Soviet Union, Ukraine as a political identity has taken on all kinds of different contexts, and that includes a much more capacious understanding of who considers themselves Ukrainian today. That has also been changed by the brutality of the full-scale invasion. I think a lot of people who didn't earlier necessarily identify strongly as Ukrainian um, are today kind of claiming that because they see themselves as targeted by this violent war. I mean, I'm, my job as a professor is to think deeply about it. My dissertation was on contemporary Ukrainian music and identity. Um, so yes, this is what I do. The Chernobyl Songs Project was something that I thought of in collaboration with my colleague in Kyiv, whose name is Yevhen Yefremov. He's a really important figure in Ukrainian ethnomusicology. So he had done all of these field recordings of traditional musics from this region of Ukraine that in 1986 suffered from this devastating nuclear catastrophe. And he had this trove of, of traditional songs that weren't being sung anymore because those people were all moved after the disaster. So it was about to be the 25th anniversary of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. So we cooked up this kind of slightly ludicrous <laughs> other scheme, which was to bring him to New York for six weeks to train a group of singers in New York in a year of song. We assembled a group of 13 singers. Uh, Professor Yefremov trained us and then we recorded it and we toured with the project. We also had a kind of staged version of it. And in 2015, finally, it came out on Smithsonian Folkways as the Chernobyl Songs Project. You can find it easily by Googling, but um, you can download the album there and also read the liner notes, which explains more in greater detail about all of the songs that we recorded and the broader context of the nuclear disaster's effect on the cultural life of that region. It was a difficult assignment. I really, I didn't want to write about Putin. You know, I, I have a lot of resentment around the ways that this war tends to obscure the experiences of Ukrainians and focuses on Putin or focuses on the plight of Russians when the people suffering genocide right now are Ukrainians. So I was really, really resistant to the idea of actually seriously writing about Putin. And yet somehow I ended up writing a song from the perspective of Putin. I think what really inspired me to that was that I was thinking about this Ukraine insult, which is zaraza, which is like, oite zaraza, that's the Ukrainian phrase I use in the song, which is like, you're this contagious thing, right? Like you're this infection. And I was trying to think about how someone infects other people with ideology, uh, with this hate, and how it can start really small and get pretty big, and how a culture war is also a real kind of war. The chorus of the song 
is just culture war. There's no other lyrics to it. I think a lot about how the culture of war that has existed um, in both the Russian case and the U.S. case and just in the, the history of humanity is one of the things that we need to work towards defeating. Um, but unfortunately, in this moment, I believe that the Russian war of aggression has to be met with Ukrainian uh, defense. I felt maybe happiest with landing on the Ukrainian phrase that kind of structured the whole. So there's kind of three voices in the song, right? There's sort of the little, the little Putin voice, the war profiteers on the bridge, and then this kind of Ukrainian curse. Part of what Maria was reacting to was something that Masha had told us, that in recent years they had been plagued by the thought that they could have killed Putin back then. Like, I had written this book full of conjecture, full of what I thought was convincing enough evidence, but was not solid evidence, was not documentary evidence. And I had walked into the Kremlin, and I had a backpack that nobody searched. There was a computer and a dictaphone and, and, and a phone, and there could have been a gun. So I've thought about it, like, what would have happened? And, you know, obviously I would have gotten arrested, and but also people would have thought I was crazy. Like, the, the whole the whole sort of mental exercise is absurd, but but it is it is similar to the to the baby Hitler conundrum. It probably would have taken many, many more years for people to find actual evidence. And now we know, but at the cost of you know, millions of people's lives. So the accordion has kind of been my major instrument for songwriting for some years. Sometimes I will write on other instruments, but more and more for the last 15 years, it's been the accordion because it lets me think about melody and harmony and supports the voice in, in I think, a nice way. I think if anything, I was thinking maybe more about like a klezmer sound because that that's an association that exists between the particular kinds of chord patterns I was using on the left hand of the accordion. Um, and the kind of melody that I came up with for the intro, but it wasn't it wasn't conscious, you know, necessarily. The accordion also just lends itself to sounding like you're playing certain Eastern European repertoires by nature of the fact that you're playing it on the accordion and not on the guitar. In my own lifetime, you know, I've been I've been as as you have too, right? Like we've been witness to the Iraq and Afghan wars. And in the 90s, of course, um, Desert Storm. And I think that this culture of war, U.S. militarism, is part of what I would wrap into that. The arms race, the Cold War arms race, and the ways that it's long-tailed as part of the current conflict is another aspect of that, right? That this kind of, you know, the possibility that, that, <laughs> that we are engaged in World War III already um, is a very bleak but very real to me possibility and it has its roots in the arms race of the 20th century. So I think culture of war I mean in not to not to only lay at the feet of, of Putin. I don't know what technically needs to happen for this to be considered a World War III, but there's a way in which this is already involving a lot of different actors around the world and then of course if you shift your gaze to what's happening in China, potentials of it growing even more dramatic is seems present. I think the threat of nuclear war is here. Legitimately, he has a nuclear arsenal, the biggest one in the world.
So, you know, I feel very odd talking about Russia and especially being asked to tell my personal story about Russia. It's very generous of Maria to engage with, um, with my silly story. I mean, because in the end, nothing happened. And in the context of this war, it seems superfluous. But it's also a story about, about this little man who's waging this war. And I think the song is perfect at encapsulating both of, of those things, right? He's so tiny, and you know, she sings about this little man with messianic ideas and you know, this idea that he's going to build a traditional value civilization and force these values down everybody's throats. And then the refrain, you know, your plague or your contagion is just so perfect because because he is like a plague on on our world and particularly on on Ukraine. He's also a plague in the sense that he's like poisonous himself. Or like it also to me evokes all these murders by poisoning. You know, it's like how cursing can feel really good sometimes. The word itself, zaraza, really means like infection or contagion or, you know, virus. It's, it's, but it can be used for a person, you know? And the way that I say it is, you are a zaraza, te zaraza. And that is something that people often say about Putin in Ukrainian, shovinya zaraza. It's this kind of like virus that has infected um, the Russian population to a large degree, not all Russians, but many of them support this war. And I think it, it feels in the way that kind of like cursing can feel kind of therapeutic. This is Maria Sonovitsky with her song, Culture War, performed live at the porch in Harlem. Okay, here's 
profiteers. Business is booming, stocks are up. Never looked better for the billionaire schmucks. Incentives might be screwy, but hell if they should care. Sonovitsky with her song, Culture War, live at the porch in Harlem. For the live show with Masha and Maria, I wrote a song as well. It's called Baby Hitler, and it's streaming all the places. The next episode features Jean Hanf Corlitz reading from The Latecomer and a brand new song by Warren Zanes. Songwriter is 100% independently produced by Hook and Crook. If you want to support the artists and the producer who make it, please consider a premium subscription from Apple or Spotify or go to songwriterpodcast.com slash donate. Five-star reviews and kind words on social media or IRL are always appreciated as well. You can always get early access to Songwriter at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, thanks as always to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe. Acoustic Cafe.